I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome to episode three of Chasing Ghost, an Irregular Warfare podcast, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to the examination of irregular warfare, counterinsurgency, insurgency, guerrilla warfare, and everything in between. There has been a delay on my promised fortnightly episodes issued as a result of selling our house, moving into a new house, and everything it takes to set up a new studio. So here we are. And I'd like to begin by saying that when it comes to the Irish Rebellion from 1916 to 1922, with the culmination of the Irish establishing a free state in the island of Eyre, E-I-R-E, which is south of Northern Ireland, of course, we have probably the most extensive primary and secondary source documentation in English of a rebellion recorded in recent history. Much primary and secondary source documentation to include oral recordings, uh, books, memoirs, you name it, and examination by amateur and professional historians alike. What has always been interesting about the Irish conflict is that, once again, it poses that episodic question in examinations of history. Do great men make great events, or do great events make great men, or vice versa? Well, I can't really come to quite a conclusion here, but I've got to say that Michael Collins, being a larger-than-life figure, who also figured in the starring role of a film by Neil Jordan, in the 1990s, considering Michael Collins and what he did in order to sustain this rebellion. Mark Twain said that history rhymes. History doesn't necessarily repeat itself because that would be impossible in human affairs for that very thing to occur. What you find with Michael Collins, and as I mentioned, 1916 to 1922, is you see the end of an 800-year occupation by the United Kingdom of this island formation that's due southeast of the United Kingdom proper. What's really fascinating about this is that not only does it provide us an English language guerrilla revolution where we can see the play-by-play, -play, what happened, what instantiated itself after they managed to wrest their independence in a free state nonetheless from the English, but that they also managed to fight one another in a civil war that took place. And I have mentioned before in the first two episodes that when it comes to the examine of, examination of irregular warfare and guerrilla conflict, insurgency, that, that kind of thing, you have larger wars decanting and uncorking smaller conflicts that have been brewing for the longest time that start to take on a life of their own. And that's precisely what happened when Michael Collins managed to get free state status for the Irish on that small island in 1922. And then an Irish civil war emerged, and not to put too fine a point on it, Michael Collins finds himself assassinated in 1922. I'm going to examine two things today. I'm going to examine a short, brief, 
explanation of Michael Collins himself and his involvement in the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which would later morph into the Irish Republican Army, and also a broader theme that I think needs to be teased out. History isn't just dry dates. History isn't simply events. History is a rippling back and forth of events that prey, depend, codepend, and evolve with each other over time and have these impacts on what appear to be disparate events that aren't quite as disparate as we may assume, as I will illustrate today when I come to the conclusion that there were four reasons why Michael Collins, Eamon de Valera, the prime minister to come in the new Irish Republic, and other players to include the British players on the other side, there's four events that led to this entire thing. One of those was World War I. The second one of those was the 1916 Rising, the failure thereof, and then the re-germination of this rebellion, which led to the success in 1922. Bloody Sunday, that Michael Collins authored in 1920, and a curious and very morbid slaughter by British arms in India at the Jaliwaliba massacre. So those four items I am going to propose to everyone listening are what led to the eventual breakdown and erasure of the 800-year occupation of Ireland by the British by 1922. Michael Collins, the scrapper, the guerrilla warfare strategist, and the intelligence operative for the IRB and the IRA, dies at the tender young age of 31 in 1922. Rather young, but very talented and very resourceful. I'd like to share a few things about him. Tough young Irish operative during the seminal years of Ireland's final divorce from the United Kingdom. Sean Cronin from Irish Nationalism, A History of Its Roots and Ideology. Realist appealed to Collins, quote, There would be no more glorious protest in arms, he decided. He built a cadre of realists around him, first in the IRB, then at volunteer headquarters, when he took over Pierce's old post as director of organization and to include intelligence, before becoming director of intelligence. Finally, in Dale Aaron, as the underground government's very effective minister for finance, Collins was a doer, essentially a well-informed opportunist with very few scruples. His entire ideology could be stated in five words. The Irish should govern themselves. End of quote. I'd like to quote... Unan O'Halpin, Collins and Intelligence, 1919 to 1923, from Brotherhood to Bureaucracy. Quote, the characteristics which mark Collins out as a remarkably successful director of intelligence in the War of Independence include his evident appreciation of the importance of the collection and assessment of information as primary elements of intelligence operations, which should precede action. His partial penetration of his adversaries own intelligence system, the efficiency and ruthlessness with, with which action based on good intelligence was taken, and his success in preserving the security and efficiency of his own organization, both in Dublin and in Britain, despite the pressures it operated under because of the constant threat of raids, arrests, and the capture of documents. Let's take a brief pause here. And that pause would be, well, when did England, the United Kingdom, invade Ireland? 
And when was it occupied by the British crown? That happened in 1169. And they suffered a brutal occupation punctuated by indigenous risings, rebellions, and pockets of resistance. Fast forward to the 20th century, we have Sinn Féin, which emerged in 1905 to formalize a political vehicle to liberate the Irish from the British occupation. And these sophisticated rebel organizations started to emerge in the 19th and 20th century, and they culminated in the 1916 Easter Rising, which ultimately failed, but with which ultimately provided the seedbed for the reemergence and resurgence of Irish rebellion to culminate in the successful 1922 divorce from London. Remember the 1916 is smack dab in the middle of British involvement in World War I, and they're having to watch their back door, as it were, in Ireland because this had been brewing for, as I mentioned earlier, 800 years. And according to the British Army, they reported casualties of 116 dead, 368 wounded, and 9 missing. 16 policemen died, and 29 were wounded. Rebel and civilian casualties were 318 dead and 2,217 wounded. The volunteers in the ICA recorded 64 killed in action, but otherwise Irish casualties were not divided into rebels and civilians. All of these figures, as we will discover when we talk about the Jolly Wallybaw massacre in India, are greatly disputed by all parties involved. The 1916 Rising was a conventional, almost uniformed rising on the part of the Irish, in which they thought that they would go toe-to-toe with the British Army, the British Army in this case, being one of the premier and leading land forces on Earth since well before the middle of the 18th century. Now, what we discover is that after this, the IRB and the other militant organizations they started to realize that the war would have to be one of the classic insurgent and conducted in suit and tie, as it were, assuming aliases and slipping through the mass base undetected. Collins would, for three years, hide in plain sight in Dublin and its environs, posing as a businessman named John Grace. Great Britain would respond with one of the most slipshod and misinformed counterinsurgency campaigns in recent history, with a number of missteps that would eventually cost them the conflict and the island of air would eventually float out of the Dominion orbit. Some suppose that if it had not occurred during wartime, that the coin may have had an even chance of success. But the modus operandi and the outlook had been shaped during wartime for the intelligence apparatus, which required, of course, intelligence officers to cut corners, dispense with vetting procedures, and cold-pitch informers. The British also severely underestimated the IRB and IRA counterintelligence operations being conducted against them, which would culminate in Bloody Sunday in November of 1920, one of the more brilliant moves that Michael Collins made during this rebellion. As most of you are familiar, when it comes to the reputation of British counterinsurgency operations, I take a chainsaw to it. This is going to be your first view of me taking a chainsaw to said conflicts. This will be the first of many that we do. In the future, we'll be talking about Malaya, we'll be talking about Oman, we'll be talking about Yemen, we'll be talking about India, and a number of other British coin missteps that are the exact 
opposite of what the Coindanistas and the established Western irregular warfare establishments hold as the key to successful counterinsurgency, which is the British method. I am going to prove the lie to that over time and over the next year. Once the British introduced the Blacks and Tans, a paramilitary police in concert with the Royal Irish Constabulary, the atrocities started to even gain the attention in England, and some members of Parliament warned that the harsh treatment would lead to a deepening resistance and compel the populace to close ranks with the rebellion. Contrary to the popular media, the massacre at Croke Park in 1920, where 13 civilians died, was at the hands of the Rick, the Royal, Ulster, the, the Royal Irish Constabulary, and some auxiliaries. Nonetheless, a critical mass of English brutality was having a measured effect on the Irish mood that the IRA took full advantage of, and Collins hatched a plan to assassinate members of the intelligence organization known as the Cairo Gang, headquartered in the castle. But we're going to pause here, and we're going to step back to 1919 instead of 1920, and we're going to talk about something that didn't happen in Ireland. It happened in British India. It's the Jallywaliba massacre, and we'll be able to put two and two together later on in this podcast to know why we're even discussing this and talking about it. So the Jallywaliba massacre, also known as the Amritsar massacre, took place on 13 April 1919. And remember, this is a mere five months after the cessation of hostilities and the armistice that ends World War I in November 1918. A large, peaceful crowd had gathered at the Jallywaliba in Amritsar, Punjab, to protest against the Rowlett Act, an arrest of pro-independence activists Saifuddin Kishlu and Sati Ayapal. In response to the public gathering, the temporary Brigadier General R.E.H. Dyer surrounded the protesters with his Gurkha, Balak, Rajput, and Sikh from 2-9 Gurkhas, the 54 Sikhs and the 59th Sindh Rifles of the British Indian Army. The Jali and Waliba could only be exited on one side, as its other three sides were enclosed by buildings. After blocking the exit with his troops, he ordered them to shoot at the unarmed crowd, continuing to fire even as the protesters tried to flee. The troops kept on firing until their ammunition was exhausted. Estimates of those killed vary between 379 and 1,500 people, and over 1,200 other people were injured, of whom 192 were seriously injured. Now, as I mentioned earlier, as far as the 1916 Easter, Easter Rising, depending on which side you're on, casualty figures on either side are going to be exaggerated or whatever the case may be. There are a number of good figures out there that were even done by Indian authorities in a commission that was that was um, opened up shortly after this happened. 1,500 is probably a good number for the number killed at the time. Anglo-Indian author Rudyard Kipling declared at that time that Dyer did his duty as he saw it, to which I disagree. This incident shocked Rabindranath Tagore, an Indian polymath and the first Asian Nobel laureate, to such an extent that he renounced his knighthood from Great Britain. And the massacre, it, it also caused a reevaluation by the British Army of its military role against civilians to, quote, minimal force whenever possible, end of quote. 
although later British actions during the Mau Mau Rebellion in the Kenya colony, that's the 1950s, have led historian Hugh Bennett to comment that the new policy could be put aside. The army was retrained and developed less violent tactics for crowd control. Of course, we did not see this instantiate over the next year or two in Ireland. The attack was condemned by the Secretary of State for War, Winston Churchill, as, I quote, unutterably monstrous, end of quote. And in the UK House of Commons debate on 8 July 1920, members of Parliament voted 247 to 37 against General Dyer. Now, many think that Churchill was quite the rhetorician, maybe the finest rhetorician of the 20th century, if not one of the finest rhetoricians in the English-speaking world. The Amritsar speech, which I have read but haven't been able to listen to because I didn't record it at the time, is my favorite Churchill speech of all time. I do wish that we could get the likes of Kenneth Branagh to do a recording of the Amritsar speech because it's absolutely terrific. It's well penned, it's well executed, and it's very un-Churchillian in his regard for civilian losses. So I would urge my listeners, if you get the opportunity to dig up Churchill's and Ritzar's speech, take a read, see what you think. The uh, British government tried to suppress information of the massacre, but news spread in India and widespread outrage ensued, of course. Details of this massacre did not become known in Britain until December 1919. Now remember, I spoke earlier where we took this pause to discuss this. Now, in concert with the end of World War I and a prostrate Britain, just absolutely economically beggared, and the war had sapped them to such a degree, they had lost so many young men. They had lost so much in their country. As a matter of fact, when 1914 occurred and you had the eve and then the conduct of World War I, there had been, since Waterloo in 1815, Almost a century of peace in Europe. This changed everything to include what Michael Collins would leverage out of this for his own rebellion to divorce himself and Ireland from London. I'd like to quote Churchill before we move on concerning the Jolly Waliba massacre. Quote, The crowd was unarmed except with bludgeons. It was not attacking anybody or anything. When fire had been opened upon it to disperse it, it tried to run away. Pinned up in a narrow place, considerably smaller than Trafalgar Square, with hardly any exits, and packed together so that one bullet would drive through three or four bodies, the people ran madly this way and the other. When the fire was directed upon the center, they ran to the sides. The fire was then directed to the sides, and many threw themselves down on the ground. The fire was then directed on the ground. This was continued to eight to ten minutes, and it stopped only when the ammunition had reached the point of exhaustion. End of quote. I wish I could say it in that superior Churchillian voice and accent, but I can't. For those of you who enjoy film when it comes to history, in 2021, I think it was on Netflix or one of the other vendors, they have a movie called Sardar Adam a Hindi language film that's based on this massacre and the eventual assassination, if I recall, in 1940 of Michael O'Dwyer by Udham Singh. So what, pray tell, could this massacre 
could Indian politics, could World War I and the end thereof, a prostrate Britain, an economically ruined Britain, a militarily beggared Britain, a Britain that's having problems maintaining its centuries-old empire, have to do with that small island to the southeast of the United Kingdom, where Irish independence is on the boil. Well, I'd mentioned that when it comes to history, it simply isn't about the dates. The dates happen to be an instantiation of when something occurred, but it doesn't have anything to do with how or why it occurred. The reason that history works in these ways, of course, is because humans are complex. Humans take decisions and groups of humans take decisions that they may not before have taken if they weren't in the situations that they were. And I'm going to knit all of this together after I described what happened in Bloody Sunday. So this propaganda war on both sides was quite effective, although one can say the Irish Rebellion had an advantage between a sympathetic USA and British public becoming exhausted with the expense and the apparent atrocities starting to percolate for the unintended conflict that Great Britain had been escalating since 1919 in Ireland. Even Churchill grew weary in 1920, as evidenced by speeches that he gave after his Jolly Wallybaugh and Ritzar speech. Quote, what was the alternative? It was to plunge one small corner of the empire into an iron repression, which could not be carried out without an admixture of murder and counter-murder. Only national self-preservation could have excused such a policy, and no reasonable man could allege that self-preservation was involved, end of quote. You know, you, you can bookend the speech with one of the greatest speeches Churchill ever made, the Amritsar speech, concerning what's been going on here and his condemnation, condemnation of British military excesses in the Raj. One can't help but think he was conflating some of that brutality with what was transpiring in Ireland, Ireland during the war. Churchill's reputation as one of the finest speakers in the English-speaking world gave him a platform. It gave him the ability to influence people in a fashion that normal MPs could not. This daily mauling of Irish civilians by British occupation forces was starting to gain more traction. On 19 June 1920, the commanding officer of the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary in Listowel, informed his ranks, quote, Now, men, Sinn Féin have had all the sport up to the present, and we are going to have the sport now. The police are not in sufficient strength to do anything to hold their barracks. This is not enough for as long as we remain on the defensive. So long will Sinn Féin have the whip hand, we must take the offensive and best Sinn Féin at its own tactics. If a police barracks is burned, or if the barracks already occupied is not suitable, then the best house in the locality is to be commandeered, the occupants thrown into the gutter. Let them die there, the more the merrier. Should the order, hands up, not be immediately obeyed, shoot and shoot with effect. If the persons approaching, a patrol, carry their hands in their pockets, or in any way suspicious looking, shoot them down. You may make mistakes occasionally, and innocent persons may be shot, but that cannot be helped and you are bound to get the right party sometime. The more you shoot, 
the better I will like you, and I assure you, no policeman will get into trouble for shooting. Now, as you will discover as we travel down this irregular warfare road together over the ensuing months and um, possibly years, if I have enough in me to do more of these, you're going to discover that when a counterinsurgent considers the mauling and killing of civilians to be on the plate and a decisive part of the menu which they'll use to put down a rebellion, the stronger, the larger, and the more steeled that rebellion will become. And in this case, the perfect storm was emerging. That would lead to the operation that would change the course of the conflict in my mind and eventually draw the British to the negotiating table to parlay for a conditional settlement and peace that may very well free, well, will very well free, the Irish from British dominion. Collins would strike that match that would put the British in the hazard. His squad, and by the way, let me just take a moment to emphasize here, plenty of books, plenty of articles, there's film, there's audio recordings, all of this, if I mention anything that I don't go into sufficient detail and depth on in this brief podcast that I'm doing, because I could talk for hours about this very campaign, look it up. You can find it or seek me out um, at uh, cgpodcast at pm.me. Ask me the question, search on the net, use whatever your favorite search engine is, go to Amazon. I've got quite a um, formidable library of Irish mostly secondary source documentation books. Uh, Tim Pat Coogan's really good and a number of others, but reach out to me if you have further questions where you really want to drill down and find out more about what went on in this conflict because there's only so much I could do in a podcast this short. So his squad was comprised of volunteer gunmen and supporting elements that would target the Cairo gang at Dublin Castle who were a key component of the intelligence complex the English had deployed into Ireland to quell the rebellion. The popular media had greatly exaggerated the importance of the Cairo gang and the vast network of intelligence assets the Crown had deployed, but the propaganda impact coupled with what would happen within hours of the assassination would force the British government to find a solution the IRB and indigenous Irishmen would agree to. Quote, shortly after eight in the morning, Collins' men converged on eight different addresses in Dublin. Nineteen soldiers, one or two of them probably not agents, were roused from their sleep and shot. Of these, 13 were killed. Six were wounded, according to official reports. When Collins would hear the news, he would say, Good God, we're finished now. It's all up. End quote. This was not the blow the popular media makes it out to be and tends to be exaggerated. This was a propaganda blow, but had a relatively minor operational impact from an intelligence perspective. Because, quote, in hindsight, Collins' operation, although executed with imprecision, was a shock to British intelligence, but quite limited in scope. The IRA succeeded in eliminating only a small fraction of the legion of British intelligence operatives, although there is no question that a few of those assassinated were among the more experienced and aggressive operators, and at the end of the day, IRA gunmen killed seven confirmed intelligence officers 
two legal officers, one informer, and two auxiliary temporary cadets, while wounding four more suspected spies, end of quote. That quote is from the excellent book by J.B.E. Hittle called Michael Collins in the Anglo-Irish War, British Counterinsurgency Failure. Collins' blow would nonetheless have far-reaching effects. That would happen just that afternoon. The day was not over because the bloody-minded British blacks and tans, paramilitary policemen, and some associated constabulary, possibly seeking revenge, opened fire at the football pitch in Croke Park that afternoon by killing 12 civilians and maiming hundreds of other players and spectators in what would become the Croke Park Massacre that would even upset the British government at the ferocity and brutality of the attack after the stinging rebuke Churchill had spoke against mere months before when talking about Jolly Wallybaugh and the massacre at Amritsar. I'd like to emphasize again, if it weren't for what I mentioned about the exhaustion from having fought World War I, the imperial quagmires that were causing such difficulties, some of which culminated in massacres such as Jolly Wallybaugh, the bad press that they were getting, North American pressure on the British to ease up on their behavior against Irish rebels, and basically Irish intransigence against British occupation and Ireland itself, all of this was coming together to form this wicked cocktail in which the British would not have the means to either accommodate a permanent imposition of armed forces to maintain the Irish as one of their colonies or commonwealths, as it were, but that the expense was becoming too formidable even for them. A mere one year later, by December 1921, the Irish would get their independence after almost 800 years as a mostly unwilling vassal of the United Kingdom. This, of course, would spark a vicious civil war between two competing factions, these competing factions being socialists fighting against socialists to establish the superior socialism in the fight for a better socialism. It would be long and bloody. Collins would be assassinated himself in his personage as the military commander of Free Ireland by a rival Republican faction in August, the 22nd of August, 1922, by anti-treaty forces who wanted in a wholesale divorce from London and not a free state or commonwealth status. Collins was an able commander and essentially one of the first successful non-state soldiers of the 20th century, although T. Lawrence may tangentially take the laurel for being a state soldier, commanding an entire army of non-state soldiers in World War I during the British fight against Turkey in the Middle East, and I will devote an episode or two or three to the exploits of T.E. Lawrence, because I consider Michael Collins, T.E. Lawrence, and the vaunted Paul Emil Leto Vorbeck to probably be, from 1916 to 1922, the most formidable if not the original authors of 20th century guerrilla warfare. One 
can't help but entertain the counterfactual that had Collins not struck such a blow and reaped the unintended windfall of English brutality and callous disregard for human life at Croke Park that same afternoon on Bloody Sunday, the Commonwealth may very well have remained intact and the Irish would not have wrested their independence from London. A quote, Given time, strength, and public support, the British forces would have re reduced rebel operations to negligible proportions. Nevertheless, these quintessential conditions were missing. While the IRA survived, political pressure on the British government increased, and though the balance was tantalizingly fine, the IRA held out longer than the government's nerve. That was what mattered. That would be Gabriel Doherty from Michael Collins and the making of the Irish state. Collins was at the right time and the right place to take full advantage of English missteps, exhaustion, and capitalize on the unintended profit from Churchill damning the British military brutality by Raj forces in India, resulting in thousands of civilian deaths and maiming. Many forces were starting to coalesce to include the post-World War I exhaustion of Britain, British financial woes, the consolidation of Irish guerrilla forces under a capable and effective leadership, Contra 1916 with the Easter Rising, and the combination of ruthless efficiency, political stellar alignments, and just the sheer exhaustion of the British public and the with the conflict, this most likely tipped the balance for Collins and his confreres. A single day, Bloody Sunday, in which both the protagonists swung at each other, may very well have set the conditions for Irish freedom. So there you have it. What I'm postulating is that this was a witch's brew. This was a a number of calculations, missteps, miscalculations, and happy coincidences that all meted out the end state that we saw in 1922, in which after that 800-year occupation by the United Kingdom, as a result of a number of circumstances and not a single one, to include not simply Michael Collins, he happened to be the right guy at the right time, and he was able to leverage and take advantage of what I would consider be the three pillars of an effective insurgency, which is legitimacy and making sure you capture it, leveraging a narrative, and leveraging and exploiting perceived and real grievances and taking all three of those things to the next level in a consolidated fashion to defeat a counterinsurgent who is seeking to continue an occupation of your country. A few listener notes for consumers of this podcast. Number one, thank you, thank you, thank you for the number of people who have reached out to me, um, got in touch with me, let me know that they're listening, uh, gave me some tips, techniques, and procedures to improve what I'm delivering. And since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, from which I divorced myself in July of 2019, I have started a new Twitter account which is going to be the sole vehicle on Twitter on which I'm going to operate. That's at WBupert, B-U-P-P-E-R-T, and it will be my Chasing Ghost podcast Twitter account. Um, any kind of recommendations, comments, discussion, if you happen to be on Twitter and you'd like to join me on Twitter, 
I would appreciate the follow. And with that, I'd like to say thanks once again. And if you wish to reach out to me until I get a website put up for Chasing Ghosts, my email for this is cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. Would love to hear from you. And until our next episode, hopefully a fortnight from now, since I am now settled into our new new home and have the new studio set up. With that, this is Bill, out.